This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Chuck Klosterman, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. You have taken a deep dive into the 90s, and anyone who has read any of your earlier books knows that any book you write is a wild ride. Um, We're going to focus on music and movies and TV and, of course, the internet so that people can be pleasantly surprised when they pick it up for themselves. You know, when you do books like this, like any kind of book about recent history, there's always this sort of temptation to be consciously counterintuitive, to -hmm. try to kind of reflect the opposite of what everyone thinks. But as I kept working through this book, I was like, it's going to be wrong if I keep doing that. In some ways, I mean, I do fear the book might be a little less surprising than people expect as a consequence of trying to be Right. (laughs) Okay, but here's the thing, and I'm going to quote you for a second. Decades are about cultural perception and culture can't read a clock. So I want to start with the dates you chose to book in the 90s, because actually, I do think that's slightly surprising for some folks. Okay. It starts with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 89 and ends with 9-11. That is now become sort of the conventional way of perceiving the 90s. What I actually say is that Uh the Berlin Wall falls. Right. And 1990 Mm -hmm. still kind of operates a little bit like the 80s on autopilot. The 90s are not a radical departure from the previous decade at all, the year 1990. I really begin the 90s as sort of having a kind of immutable values and like a definite aesthetic and all the things that we associate with that period, starting with the release of Nevermind in 1991 in September. And then. It does end at, you know, 9-11, which is in 2001. But you see this a lot with time periods, you know, where it's, we look at the calendar, or we look at a date and we're like, okay, so it's January 1st, 1990, the decade is starting. But that's not really how it works. Things are always hazier than that. Well, hazier, yes. But you know what? Under those parameters, Fargo Rock City, which was your debut. Yes. Technically a 90s book. You published in May of 2001. Well, and not just it published in May of 2001. Most of that book was written in 1999 before I had an agent, before I had met one person in New York, anything like that. So that book was certainly grounded in the 90s. I mean, okay. Not only did you write it then, though, it's informed by that moment. I mean, before we get to the new book, before we really dig into the 90s, what would you have done differently with that first book? If I wrote it now, well, well, from a writing perspective, I would say absolutely everything. There's probably not one sentence in that book that I would not rewrite now if I could write it again. And in fact, a dream scenario would be if someone paid me a million dollars a year to rewrite that book every year, like have it never be published. But uh, I also realize like the larger reality, which is the things in that book that I see as flaws are in all likelihood the things that people who like that book like the most. A lot of times you see this with musicians, that as they become more talented at their instrument, their songwriting becomes less meaningful to people. It's like less emotive or less sort of organic. So I'm very aware of that. So I guess in truth, I wouldn't do anything differently because I wouldn't want my life to turn out differently than it is. But that book is loose. Like when I look at that book now, I, I try not to. There are some ideas in it that I think are not terrible. But boy, the sentences are long and there are a lot of semicolons and there are a lot of parentheses. It looks like somebody just 
sat down after they got home from work every day and just wrote for four hours. And after a year, they had a book because that's what it was. That's what I did. Okay. So this is your 12th book. You have been a journalist in Fargo and Akron. You have been a columnist for the New York Times. You were the ethicist for a number of years. You've done cover stories for GQ. You come out of journalism and storytelling and music and pop culture. And some of the most lively writing in the 90s centers on really the fun bits, right? Music, movies, TV. As you say, the 90s started with Nevermind in 91. And I remember when that album hit and the world blew up. So when did you start thinking about this book? When did you start writing this book? How did this book evolve for you? Well, okay. So I had written a book 10 years ago now called Eating the Dinosaur, which is just a kind of an essay collection. But the original inception of that book was going to be essentially tracing the trajectory of the 90s. I was going to start it at one point just before the technical 90s began, end at 9-11. It was going to be 12 essays, which really correspond with one year each. And at the time, my thinking was like, well, you know, so David Halberstam wrote the 50s and that book came out in the 90s. But like with accelerated culture, a book about the 90s needs to come out 10 years after it happened. So I start working on that. I think it did an essay about the Nirvana album in utero, actually, and David Koresh, which is in that book. But then I was like, well, I'm, I'm just, I'm framing this too tightly. It's going to seem forced. So I just wrote a regular book of essays. Um, but so the idea of doing a 90s book had been there for a while. And then after I had done my last book, which was Raised in Captivity, that's like a short story collection. I knew I was going to do a nonfiction book that was in line with the writing I had done for most of my life. That was kind of closer to, I think, what other people kind of perceive me as being, you know, my editor seemed enthusiastic. My agent seemed enthusiastic. I think that in many ways, this seems like a very commercial idea. If someone doesn't buy this book, they're almost not buying it because like I wrote it or something. Cause it's like, it's like, it's it's like just about the nineties. It seems like it would apply to almost anyone. You have a chapter where you link specifically Oprah Winfrey and Alan Greenspan. Yes. Where did that come from? (laughs) Well, okay. So one thing that I think is to me, meaningful about the 90s. And this is one of those things that is very present in the culture now, which is this kind of bifurcation of how much the way you feel should dictate how you live as opposed to how you think. In some ways, it's like a battle over like rationality, I guess, a little bit like that Stephen Pinker book, possibly. But like what I thought about was how someone like Alan Greenspan was this rarefied figure that could will never happen again, which is like a rock star guy running like you know the Federal Reserve or whatever. Where you know four different presidents of different political affiliations, they all basically loved Greenspan. The idea of the '90s economic boom in the present was really seen as a reflection of his kind of detached intellectual guiding of the economy. Now that is it's different now. Like when we got into the 21st century and some things happened. He, his perception has really radically changed. But in the 90s, he was, he was unassailable. 90s was also the rise of Oprah Winfrey, who in many ways was the highest profile individual to kind of tell people how you feel matters as much as what somebody else might say is logically or reasonably happening. Your experience, live your truth through all of these things kind of come out of there. So I use them as kind of this example of there was this kind of unspoken war between the idea of 
feeling less and thinking more or feeling everything and having that be its own kind of valid form of reality. And I think that, you know, as time has moved on, it's pretty clear which of those two figures has kind of become more calcified in the culture. I saw them as two figures who were very much associated with that period, but who maybe unconsciously represented two diametrically different views about how life is supposed to work. And that's also the moment where we shift from a very analog way of life to a digital way of life. I mean, we all remember that AOL sound. Uh, the sound of the insurrection was not musical. The sound of the insurrection was annoying. And wow, was it ever. But at the same time, this is a massive shift. And part of that shift, as you say, is moving to this idea that we're feeling more. But we also have the Gen X bit where we're all kind of hanging back on, mm, yeah, I don't want that. A lot of times you'll see when people talk about the various sort of canonical generations. You know, you got like the greatest generation and then you got the baby boomers and you have the Gen X people and then you have the millennials and you have Generation Z or whatever. And Generation X is sort of kind of perceived as the least impactful of those generations. And that's not unjustified. I mean, because that was a period and I was part of this group where it wasn't a time to be aspirant. You know, the idea of sort of stepping away from society and living a more insular life where you're kind of your own interiority mattered more because the stakes were lower. The 90s were, for example, for like Bill Clinton's presidency, a great time to be president. I mean, there was no hot war. There was no cold war. The economy was good. It was sort of like, you know, like it, it seemed as though many of the problems that uh, we would face later or had faced in the past briefly sort of dissipated and you could think about yourself. You didn't have to think about society as much. It was acceptable to sort of step away and just be like, well, I'm just going to kind of view myself as the protagonist in this story. Everyone is the main character in their own story. And that was, you don't have to affect the world. I mean, there's like that line in Reality Bites where the Ethan Hawke character literally says, I am under no obligation to make the world a better place. I think that would be an extremely unpopular idea among young people now. They would actually see him as the villain of that story. But that was not the case in 1994. He was seen as like the coolest person in this story because he possessed this worldview. We were also barbarians then, to be perfectly honest. In the 90s, I mean, transphobia was acceptable and homophobia was like, mm -hmm. we were barbarians. We have come a long way, I hope, in 30 years. It feels like sometimes we're not getting there. But this is sort of where you start to hear all of the yelling about political correctness in ways that had ratcheted up conversations that had been had sort of on the periphery for a while. And then suddenly you had people talking about it in a much more general way. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I was in college from 1990 to 1994, and that was when the term, then the hot button term was political correctness. Take a creative writing class and there would be a guy in there writing about how like we got to outlaw boxing or whatever. There was like this sudden decision that's like, well, being a progressive person sort of meant uh, adopting these certain values that in many ways were coming out of academia. What is strange, and maybe this is how it always is, it seemed like a big deal at the time. Now, when you look at the way the world is now, that political correctness battle seems very quaint. What is somewhat sort of terrifying is the idea that in, say, 25 or 30 years, the discourse and intellectual battles of the present tense are going to seem quaint, which makes me wonder what the world's going to be like in 30 years. It's hard to say, you know, it's a, it's a strange situation, yeah. Those conversations, too, oddly didn't quite appear in the pop culture mainstream. I mean, you've got shows 
like Seinfeld and Friends and Will and Grace, huge monster hits. There were still pop culture moments. I remember being out in New York the night of the Seinfeld finale, and I had no interest in watching it. And a friend of mine and I had gone out for a drink. We were the only people in the bar, and the bartender was like, yeah, if I could have gotten someone to cover my shift, I would not be here either. And we were both kind of like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> it just didn't register. I mean, The X-Files was a moment in pop culture. I mean, I do remember that. But now well, we're kind of scattered to the winds. Well, you know, now there is no monoculture. Mm -hmm. we, we only use terms like monoculture to describe how it no longer exists. Every so often there'll be a moment someone will die. And a lot of people have like a, like a longstanding relationship with the individual and it will feel like that is a shared experience because of social media. Some events that were less important then have become more important now, the Grammys or whatever, the Oscars, anything that can be experienced in real time. But in the decade of the nineties, there were many more things that were kind of monocultural that because of the limitations of, you know, the scarcity, I guess. I mean, the fact that there was not these small pieces of the world, but these kind of big chunks. Some people ended up sharing them by default. That did, in a weird way, foster a, a social stability. If people are, are sort of forced to share things or choose to share things, however you look at it, there is more of kind of a connecting fluid between their experiences. And as those things changed, the 90s were the last decade of the 20th century, but in many ways, they were the last decade that we're ever going to talk about as a decade, it's going to be much more difficult to sort of find kind of these immutable shared values going forward. And you can already see that. I mean, let's say like a, you showed somebody a clip of an obscure movie from 1965, and then you showed them an obscure clip of a movie from 1980, and they don't recognize any of the actors, they haven't seen the films, it's going to be very easy for them to say which one came first and which one came second. It'll be very clear. If you do that with a movie from, say, 2005 and 2020, it's almost impossible. I mean, the visual presentation, sort of the way the world is imagined, all the world building stuff, the way the people talk will seem almost identical. We are sort of transitioning into a phase of like a kind of a perpetual now where the internet collects all this information for us. And as a consequence, because it's so accessible, the movement of time feels different. There's a theory about this called like the slow cancellation of the future. It's very prescient and it really does explain how it feels to be alive now. But that was sort of what made it interesting going back into the 90s where it did still feel the way time had moved in the past, that there were these almost caricatures of a time that even if they were inaccurate, were generally accepted. I mean, that's part of it. When we look back at any period of time or any decade, there are certain things that we all kind of accept as kind of the broad generalization of the period. And even if we disagree with them, we were like, well, that wasn't how it was for everybody or that wasn't how it was for me. Like you, you didn't care about the finale of Seinfeld, yet you still have a real understanding that, well, that's what the monoculture was doing though. And I was outside of that. It would be harder to do that now. It is odd that something that gets so much attention, say like, you know, like the finale of Game of Thrones or whatever, that was watched by many less people than a random episode of Seinfeld or even like a show that was like put on after Seinfeld just to fill time. That show was seen by more people than the last episode of The Sopranos. And yet we act as though these things in the culture that have that are really relative to the past, small, are what everyone's talking about. 
when everyone was talking about something in the 90s, that was actually happening. When everybody was talking about the O.J. Simpson trial, that was real. That's how it was, you know? Part of what you're talking about is represented in the movies that were released in the 90s. If you think about it, The Matrix, The Phantom Menace, which will come to Star Wars in a second, American Beauty, Speed, Titanic, Kids, Jurassic Park, The Blair Witch Project. I mean, there's this intersection of these big, monstrous, big budget films, and then essentially films that you could argue, Tarantino, are driven by video store culture, which doesn't exist anymore. Well, that is true. You know, I mean, you look at the early part of the 90s, particularly, say, 91, 92, 93. That was mm -hmm. the idea that this is like the independent film explosion. That mm -hmm. It was now real possible to make a film without a studio that would be experienced by people in the same way a major film from MGM or whoever, like, you know, Sony, whatever it would be. The technology had sort of equaled the playing field. Also, video store culture was a big part of this because it was now possible for somebody in Gary, Indiana to have an encyclopedic kind of complete understanding of film based on his or her own judgment. Like it wasn't even like a film school tutorial. It was like, well, you can just go in the store with 8,000 titles, randomly watch things for $2.99, build your own aesthetic, and then make a movie. What is interesting then is that by the time we get to the end of the 90s and the release of Titanic, it all kind of shifts back real dramatic. Pre-Titanic, the idea was starting to emerge that you don't want to spend too much on a movie. What movies are making at the box office was not moving up as fast as the cost of creating these epic blockbusters was. James Cameron makes Titanic, goes way over the $100 million mark. It's a three-hour movie, so they can only play it in movie houses once a night. It seems just destined to fail, but it becomes the biggest film of all time, certainly in the moment. And then there's almost a, almost a recalibration of how this should be, that what you can sort of produce and earn when you swing big became sort of the center of the industry. And now, 20 years later, that's sort of all the movie industry is. There is no middle class for film now. It's like a real small indie movie that maybe you see on you know, Netflix immediately doesn't even maybe play in a theater or kind of a Marvel movie or whatever, which is built off this idea of what the potentiality of Titanic sort of illustrated. Yeah, Noah Hawley, the novelist and screenwriter and showrunner, says that his nine-year-old son actually has a bigger experience of film just because of what's available now and the things that you can tap into over the internet. Well, that's true. I mean, that's that's... It, it's a, an interesting way of looking at it, but it's technically exactly accurate. Like when people will be like, well, I don't like music now. Like very often for people, it's like music stopped being good after like their sophomore year in college. It's ironic how often that happens. But you could always argue, well, music can only get better because we don't lose any of the past music. Even if like only one record that you find likable comes out in a given year, overall music has improved because you didn't lose anything either. Where in the 90s sometimes, and in the 80s and the 70s and all those times, you did lose things. If you went to your record store, for whatever reason, like, they didn't have any, you know, records by Foghat, well, pff, you didn't listen to Foghat. That was just how it was. It was like, it was like, you had to go to a different store or go home. This brings me back to the internet and how much it's changed our brains. And this is something you acknowledge in the book. But there's a phrase that you have when you're talking about John Perry Barlow and the EFF, which is the Electronic Frontier Foundation for folks who don't know. But there was a moment where we thought the internet was going to really democratize culture. And it was going to just make everything available to everyone. And yet now we're at a point where 
that's not quite happening the way we envisioned it. Well, although I think some people would argue that it is. And and mm-hmm. I think that some of the things that we're uncomfortable with about the internet now is the logical manifestation of what trying to democratize all communication will do. I mean, we're so programmed. If we hear the word democracy or democratized, it was like, it must be good. But that's not necessarily true. If we democratized the possession of uranium, that wouldn't be good. You know, so some things maybe are more troubling within the context of freedom. The thing about the early internet, we're talking 94, 95, 96, 97. This is a period of time where, again, the caricature is people are underwhelmed. They're very cynical. They're not excited about anything. It was sort of cool to be say like, oh, whatever, be bored. And yet the enthusiasm for the early internet and the optimism is almost hard to fathom because it's so out of step with everything else that was happening during that period. It was still like this insular world of people who saw the internet as the potential answer to almost everything. Like there wasn't any problem or scenario that couldn't be reinvented. And because it was still a small insular community, they sort of imagined the rest of the world as they adopted this technology would think about the internet and use the internet in the same way they did, which is, you know, that is not what happened. I mean, it's like sort of when, when something then becomes normative and sort of becomes accepted by everyone, they're going to use it for their own purposes. And, you know, things changed in ways that they seem predictable now, but they didn't seem predictable then. There was also a long period in the nineties where it was always as if, you know, the internet is coming. It's coming. When? Well, it's coming soon. Well, how soon? Oh, maybe two years. Then two years later, it's like the internet's coming. It's coming. It's just coming. It's going to change everything. It's coming. It's like, well, I can still live an analog life. I don't need it. Well, it's coming. And then suddenly it was ubiquitous. So we've got the internet, we've got Napster, we've got all of these moments where it's just like, what is going on? I mean, greed is driving some of this, capitalism is driving some of it. But you also talk about a moment that we had in the 90s and Gen X cynicism, whatever we want to call it. But there's a moment that you describe as being new sincerity. Can we talk about where that came from and how that came out of this sort of chaotic other stuff? The new sincerity has been applied to many different idioms of culture kind of intermittently starting in the 80s. Like there was a, there was a new sincerity movement in music sort of around Austin, Texas. None of those bands really became uh, successful, but that's what it was called. And the idea of using kind of ironic distance as an artistic tool was cheap. That somehow the idea that you could love something but not really care about it was a problem for the consumer of art. Then there was kind of briefly like a new sincerity idea in filmmaking. Kevin Costner would often be used as an example of this. Is like when he's making a movie about how he feels, the feeling is not a construction, that that's, that's what you're supposed to take from it. But then it really became the center of literature at the end of the 90s. That this idea that like the the relationship between the artist and kind of almost like their real life intent was really critical. We now think of the 90s as this period where the only sort of comedic style was irony, that ironic distance kind of informed everything. And you see this in lots of ways. I mean, a band like Pavement, for example, you know, you could look at Pavement and say like, well, this is the best band of the 90s. But you could also look at them as like, they don't even care. I mean, there was like a Beavis and Butthead clip where they're watching a pavement video and like Beavis is saying like, try, like try, like the band's not trying. Part of what made them attractive was that they didn't seem to be trying. They seemed to almost be commenting on people who tried too hard. In the 90s were a bad time for people who tried too hard. 
Well, it would be a movie like Happiness, for example. It's kind of a small movie. It has some very, very dark ideas in it, but, you know, it was still comedic. And the new sincerity was kind of fighting against this. It was like, if you're using irony and you're using emotional distance, that's a crutch. And you should not reward an artist for being able to be interesting without being emotionally invested. You know, and then it, it kind of comes and it goes. I mean, it would be, in some respects, you could look at the way the culture is now, and though it's not named that, I think that there, well, we probably are in a new sincerity period now, but we don't use that term the way we used it then. Do you have a moment that you think of as distinguishing the 90s that isn't a pop culture or an artistic moment? I mean, we saw OJ, we saw Columbine, we saw the Oklahoma City bombing, we saw the first bombing of the World Trade Center in New York. I mean, there were some big, big moments in the 90s. Well, I I mean, if I had to pick one specific moment as sort of, well, this is going to be how we're going to understand everything about the 90s through. We're going to use this one thing. I suppose I would select the OJ Simpson Bronco Chase, even more so than the trial. For a, a lot of different reasons. W- one is that, you know, it was a collective experience and a spontaneous collective experience. So it wasn't like, you know, the last episode of Seinfeld or, you know, it was like suddenly this event's happening and, and, and all these people are sort of attached to it. It was also the weirdness of an event based around a legitimate tragedy of two people being murdered a celebrity being involved, this unexpected chase through Los Angeles that just seemed so cinematic's not the right word, but like outside of reality, that was still sort of consumed as entertainment. Like the stakes of this somehow seemed low, even two people were dead. I think of that as a kind of thinking that was pretty ubiquitous in the 90s, that you could look at an event uh, that was meaningful and yet not necessarily have to view it as meaningful to you. So, I mean, I I think of that day probably as like the most 90-ish day of the 90s. Do you remember where you were? In many ways, I missed that chase. I had just moved uh, from college to Fargo to start my kind of new job and my new life. And I just moved into my apartment and I didn't have cable yet. The cable had not been hooked up. So, I'm like, well, I can go watch the NBA finals at a bar or I can go see the movie Backbeat, this movie about the Beatles that was out. Okay. And I decided to go to the movie Backbeat. So I go to the Beatles movie and I watch it in the Fargo theater and I get out of the theater. It's not dark yet. The sun is still out. I start my car up and the radio is on. And the first thing I hear is that the DJ says, okay, we have, this is just in. OJ Simpson's Bronco is now parked in front of his home. And I remember thinking, Boy, the media is out of control. How is this possibly a story? A man has parked a car and that's like, that's on the radio. I get home and I have like 25 messages on my answering machine and I hit the button and it's just friends of mine going like, are you watching this? Can you believe this? This is unbelievable. So I'm like, no, what's happening? So I get the rabbit ears on my television and I can kind of fuzzily watch the end of this day, but I kind of missed it. Then, of course, subsequently now I've watched it many times and researching this book, it's like I re-experienced it again. But I'm like one of the few people who did not watch that. I was watching, you know, fake Beatles. Do you have a favorite movie from the 90s? My favorite movie from the 90s is Slacker. 
which is the Richard Linklater film. That's my favorite movie of all time. It's not the best movie of the 90s. I think a lot of people would say it's not even the best Richard Linklater movie. But it is, I think, in, in so many ways, the best possible capsule of a kind of thinking that had emerged from the underground of the 80s to become a real sort of natural mindset of the 90s. Now, I don't write about Slacker that much in the book for two reasons. One, my wife, Melissa Merritt, wrote an oral history of Dazed and Confused. So it almost seemed weird to write about Richard Linklater that much again. And also in a previous book, But What If We're Wrong, I had interviewed Richard Linklater about dreaming. So it seemed a little odd to do another big piece on this guy. It would almost seem like I'm working for him or whatever. I mentioned Slacker a few times in the book, but uh, probably not as much as I would have if I had known I was going to do this. <laughs> if I had known I was going to do this, I wouldn't have interviewed him before probably, and I would have saved it for this. But Totally got it. Favorite album from the 90s? My favorite album from the 90s is probably... Exile in Guyville by Liz Fair. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for understanding uh, how great that album is. She is a wonder. Uh, and well, I, I'm glad I excited you. I, I didn't think it would, broke yeah. my CD. I yeah. didn't know you could do this, but I mean, I just played it into oblivion. But she's the bomb. Well, she's you know, they totally always the they they always said CDs wouldn't break. That was one of the myths I, of CDs. I have one destroyed the, so yeah. many. <laughs> well, you know, because so this is like a. I, I'm kind of glad you mentioned this in passing. I almost wrote a section in this book just describing what a CD is because, well, here's why. The most complicated part of doing this book was not the research. It was not the writing. It was not even the fact that like I had to do this during the pandemic, although that did make things hard. The hardest thing was the realization that for half of the people who read this book, the 90s are something they vividly remember. It's almost like it just happened to me. Oasis being new, that just happened. I remember that just you know, like, you know, um, and then for another half of the audience, it's either going to be the period in which they were born. So they had like a three-year-old's perception of the time, or it's no different than reading about the civil war or the moon landing or something. It's like, it's just history. So I was always trying to figure out to what degree do I need to be expository? I mean, that was the hard thing. Because if you're somebody who remembers the 90s very vividly, I mean, I was born in 1972 or whatever, if you're someone my age, what you're really looking for is sort of kind of criticism and analysis. But if you were born in 1996, what you're kind of looking for is like, what was going on? <laughs> like, you know, it's like, what, 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 what were they actually talking about? And that was tricky. In a weird way, it would have been easier to write a book about the 1890s. Because we all have the same view of that, you know? Like, huh. All right. Favorite book from the 90s? Oh, my favorite book of the 90s that came out in the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, my answer now would be different than my answer then. I feel like mm -hmm. if my, you know, my answer then, I think, would have been like, well, you know, I, I went through these little phases where like when Generation X came out, that was like a big deal to me. Like, you know, that was, I was, that was a real big deal when I read that in college. I was very into like Mark Lehner in the middle of that period. It probably is my favorite book of the 90s at the time, and maybe even in some ways now, would be the, the Wallace Collection, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. What is weird about that is, you know, that really made me want to do a different kind of journalism. I would read these stories and they were funny and they were insightful and they were amazing and I couldn't believe some of the details. And then now later, I find out that the really like most amazing details in those essays 
probably were made up. The okay stuff is like stuff I could do, you know? But then like there's one of the essays is about him on a cruise ship and like he's playing chess with like a nine-year-old girl or something and he's describing all the moves in this chess game. And I remember reading that being like, this guy is amazing. It's like he does this thing casually and he remembers all these details about this game and then he uses those details to sort of make a metaphor about it. And then, I, and then I read like a biography of him after he was dead and was like, well, some of these things he just sort of made up. That's like a very, I guess, a 90s kind of just disenchantment. Like I enjoyed this thing. Now that I know more about it, I enjoy it less. <laughs> what do you want readers to know about the 90s? That's, a, that's an interesting question because in some ways my answer is I don't have a specific feeling of what I want people to think or take away. You know, I, 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 it's not as though this is not really a book of persuasion, but I will say this, and this is, I, and this might sound arrogant. I don't want to, I don't want to come across in this way, but I, I do, I do think this. Okay. Like, I think there's going to be a lot of writing about the nineties in the coming five to 10 years. And I think that a lot of it's going to be done similar to sort of how I did that book, Fargo Rock City, which is like, this experience was my experience. Okay. So like I experienced the eighties in this way, this was the life I had and it's significant because it happened to me with this book. I'm trying to do something that I hadn't really tried before, which is actually sort of create the baseline experience that all of these other works can sort of in many ways, like try to contradict. I have a feeling that a lot of people, even people who are like interested in this book before it comes out, they kind of think it's going to be me talking about my life in the 90s because so many of my other books are like that. But this one's not that way. There's a section where I read about Liz Fair. I read about Alanis Morissette. I liked Liz Fair. I never listened to Alanis Morissette at the time, but I knew it was meaningful. You know, I wasn't obsessed with like the Biosphere Project at the time. I followed it on the news, but like it seemed like a meaningful thing to describe the idea I was getting at about the 90s, but it didn't really apply to me. What I'm hoping, kind of the response that people have when they read this book is that they were like, that seems right. Like, this seems how it was. Like, the, the way he describes the texture of the time, the things he says were kind of critical. Maybe they will not completely agree, but they won't be like, that's just a guy making stuff up. You know, like, I'm, I'm trying to write a book or try to write a book that, like, when my kids are older, if they want to read one of my books, I can give them this one. You had me Googling Polly Shore while I was researching. <laughs> uh, because you didn't know who he was or you wanted to remember I, what he was? I yeah, knew who he uh, was. I wanted to know what he was up to because I had not thought about him possibly ever. But you have him in there and, and it makes perfect sense that he pops up. He is one well, of Well, yeah, I, I, I kind of connect him to Bill Clinton in a way, uh, which I, I don't know. I, I, I suppose it's not like the greatest thing, greatest relationship if you're Clinton maybe, but, uh, you know... <laughs> The 90s were weird, man. They were wicked weird. I don't think any of us really knew what was happening <laughs> while we well, were living through it. There was a social push to be weird. You know, I mean, because the 80s had been the opposite. You don't want to, you know, over-exaggerate any details, but that was a period where there was a certain reward to conforming to what was happening with the mainstream world. MTV comes into existence, for example. And suddenly the musical culture is being dictated by sort of one outlet as opposed to 900 radio stations across the country. A lot of things about the more conservative aspects of the 80s were sort of this push to sort of kind of disregard some of the ideas that had come from the 60s specifically 
and be like, well, you know, you can get what you want by doing what everyone else is doing. And the 90s then kind of tack the other way. You know, I, th- I think it's, it's kind of funny. You know, there's that show Portlandia. I live in Portland, Oregon now. The first episode of Portlandia is this idea, like the dream of the 90s is alive in Portland. And there, I, I see what they meant by that. Living here is a little bit like being in the 90s where there is almost an overappreciation for being weird. It's like sort of like, like if it, whatever you do, it's great as long as it's kind of bizarre or like sort of, or, or seems to have absolutely no financial or perceptive success. And the 90s got weirded away when, because when alternative things became omnipresent, you know, you could have alternative comedy. So comedy that's not necessarily funny in sometimes. It's like there's jokes with no punchline or whatever. Or it's like, oh, you know, Blues Traveler. It's like, here's a harmonica-based band fronted by a 400-pound guy. They can open for the Rolling Stones. It's like, oh, it's weird. You know, it's like, oh, it's great. It was a an individualistic period and periods that sort of support individualism tend to get strange, you know? <laughs> uh. Is there anything you want to add before I thank you for being on the show? Is there something you really wanted to cover that we didn't hit in this sort of wide ranging? <laughs> oh, no, not really. Okay. But this is a hard book to, to interview someone about. I'll be interested to see like how people review it because mm-hmm, I don't yeah. like, a, it's not like a, I, I will admit, you know, it's like people, when you do a book like this, in some ways, what people really want is the writer to have a strong, almost exaggerated take on things. Like they yeah. want the, the individual yeah, yeah. to sort of like look at a period and be like, oh, actually, um, you know, this individual was, you know, most detrimental person that society had seen in 40 years. Or this obscure television show was actually the greatest piece of art. This book isn't like that as much. Okay, so it's not as though I'm trying to sort of describe this period in a way that has never before been considered. I was just trying to do a good job. <laughs> it's context. It's yes. context. And yes. context seems to be the thing that we are lacking in so many conversations that we're having about a lot of things. But, you know, you call that Liz Fair. I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> Chuck Klusterman, thank you so much. The 90s is out now. Thank you very much. And now it's time for your TBR top off uh, coming to you from our Northville store at Barnes and Noble. My name is James and I am here as always with Margie. Hi, Margie. Hi, James. And we are here to recommend three books to add to your TBR, your to be read list based on this week's interview. And Chuck Klosterman with his book about the 90s is here. We are so excited. I got my MC Hammer pants on. Um, <laughs> I've got my sassy magazine. (laughs) By the way, first compact disc. I'm calling it a a compact disc. You may know them as CDs. Uh, (laughs) Was MC Hammer. I want you to know. First CD that I ever purchased with my own money. That's brilliant. It was great. And so we're excited for Chuck Klosterman's new book about the 90s. A little nostalgia for us 90s folks. And we're going to add some books to your list. And today we do have a special guest. Who do we have, Margie? We have Squirrel. Yay! Squirrel is joining us also from the uh, Northville store. He has the honor of being our first third party on the podcast and the honor of being my husband. He's a very lucky fellow. Would you like to say hello, Squirrel? Hello. Squirrel, we are happy to have you this week. You have a recommendation for us as well, right? I do. All right, well, let's get started. Margie, why don't you take it away? 
Absolutely. So today I picked a book that also has to do with one specific decade called The Great Society by Amity Schles. Uh, It is about the tumultuous, of course, decade of the 60s. It has a lot in common with today where people are pulled between a sort of socialism and economic redistribution and those who just really are like, no, capitalism is the way and it should be even purer. So in the 60s, Lyndon Johnson actually coined the phrase Great Society, but this really took place under JFK, under Lyndon Johnson, and under Richard Nixon. They all came up with these progressive programs to try to alleviate poverty, to try to get civil rights enacted, and to just lift people up and make it a more equitable society to live in. Unfortunately, these programs did not work. And the best and brightest in military, they failed in Vietnam. The best and brightest at home, they came up with all these programs that sounded great. And then they didn't do anything. Or they made people end up reliant on government programs for a lot longer than really they should have been. I would definitely argue that this problem was not with the conception, but with the execution, there is a lot of ways in which they were not able to implement these programs in the way that would have been the best for the people that they were supposed to be helping. So that still happens today. (laughs) But it's a really, really interesting history of the way in which people tried to legislate cultural change. And I really highly recommend it. So that is Great Society by Amity Schles. All right. Well, I am picking up on what you're putting down there, to use a 90s phrase. Uh, (laughs) My book this week is by Jennifer Matthew. It's called Moxie. Uh, It's a YA title, so it can be read by by teens or adults. But it has a really fun 90s throwback to the punk rock of the 90s, Riot Girl. The main character, Vivian, is at a Texas high school, and she sees that there's sexist dress codes, harassment, and just inequality at her high school, and she gets really fed up with it. But then she comes across some of her mother's photos and mementos of the past and sees that her mom used to be a punk rock feminist who made her own zine. You guys know about zines, right? Oh, yeah. Certainly, I have done several. (laughs) Spent many a late nights at Kinko's printing printing them (laughs) off. That's Uh, what you do. Her mom made a feminist zine. And so she does the same thing and anonymously distributes the zine to her entire school. And it causes a bit of a good uprising. So not only is it about that movement and and embracing the idea that you can create change in, in your own world, but also it's it's about the mother and daughter relationship and about how values have progressed. Like some of the things that her daughter advocates for are different than what the mom might've advocated for back in the nineties. So it's a fun throwback. It's got a great mother-daughter relationship. And uh, it was also made into a film by Amy Poehler. She loved yeah. the, uh, the book so much that she produced the film and stars in the film as well. But I, of course, think that the book was better. So I recommend Moxie by Jennifer Matthew. And Squirrel, you got your 90s book. What do you got? I sure do. I'm going to recommend The Spitboy Rule by Michelle Cruz Gonzalez. The subtitle is Tales of a Chicana in a Female Punk Band. She was the drummer and one of the lyricists for a feminist punk band called Spitboy in the early 90s, so preceding Riot Girl by a few years, but sharing a lot of those values. 
And it gets into this very particular part of the DIY punk community uh, reacting against the sexism and racism in the scene to great effect and uh, becoming a very significant force in the underground. It's, it's very well written. It has lots of flyers and photos, a couple of great introductions. Definitely highly recommend it. And what's the title of that again? And it's The Spit Boy Rule by Michelle Cruz Gonzalez. All right. Well, that's your TBR 90s top off for this week. Thanks for joining us on Port Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. Make sure you stop into your local Barnes & Noble where we can recommend a book for you in person. We love doing it. Stop in here and see me, Margie, or Squirrel. We'll help you out. Uh, my name is James, and you can follow me on Instagram at James Reading Books. And I'm Margie, and you can follow me at Margie Bookbrain. Have a great rest of your week. Thanks, everybody. Happy reading. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.